So I have uh, on my computer, um, and I don't know how long it's been there. I don't know how long I've had it, long enough to no longer know where I got it from. But I have a test on my computer, which is to be administered to men, and men only. (laughs) And actually, it's a test to determine if a man is a real man or not. And I thought maybe this morning I would share just a couple of those questions with you. And ladies, although this is a test for men, um, you too, I think, might benefit at least a little bit as you listen. And maybe you might better understand us, maybe just a little bit. And your lives might be enriched by that. Now, it's important for you to note that all real men answer C to each one of these questions. So the first question is this. Alien beings from a highly advanced society visit the Earth, and you're the first human they encounter. As a token of intergalactic friendship, they present you with a small but incredibly sophisticated device that is capable of curing all diseases, uh, providing an infinite supply of clean energy, wiping out hunger and poverty, and permanently eliminating oppression violence over the entire Earth. And so you decide, A, to present it to the President of the United States, B, to present it to the Secretary General of the United Nations, or C, take it apart. (laughs) Now, the answer to that is obviously take it apart. I mean, how true is it? Men love to get their hands on things and take things apart and see how they work. Question two, as you grow older... Well, what lost quality of your youthful life do you miss most? A, innocence. B, idealism. C, cherry bombs. I don't know about you, but I never had enough fun with cherry bombs. I could do some more, even now. Uh, Number three, in your opinion, the ideal pet is a cat, A, B, a dog, or C, a dog that eats cats. Sorry about that, cat lovers. (laughs) Number four, so as a man, you've decided that you truly love a woman and you want to spend the rest of your life with her, sharing the joys and sorrows the world has to offer, come what may. So how do you tell her? A, you take her to a nice restaurant and tell her after dinner. B, you take her for a walk on a moonlit beach and you say her name. And when she turns to you with the sea breeze blowing through her hair and the stars in her eyes, you tell her. Or C, tell her what? All right, maybe I won't read any of the rest of them. But I love that kind of stuff. And you know what? There are not a whole lot of things left in our culture. But we can still, in a good-natured way, sort of way, poke fun at. And virtually no one's going to take offense to what we just did. It, It may be that the male of our species is the last of its kind. And if so, it might be something for us as men that we can take a certain level of pride in. The ability to laugh at one's own foibles is, I think, a really healthy thing. And one of the things that makes all of those questions that we just read so funny, at least funny to me, uh, is, is that it highlights the differences between men and women. Men are different. But then from the other perspective, women are different too. And I'm glad of that difference, aren't you? I mean, really. Not really is God's design. When God made the first man, he looked at him and he knew he was not complete. 
And so God made a woman, and then he looked at his creation, and after making the man, the woman so that they could be together, he called it very good indeed. So God didn't make another man to meet Adam's need. He, he made a woman. He made her also in the image of God, but different than the man. The man and the woman complete each other, the same and not quite the same but together they make one, and I've often illustrated it by this, you know. These are both hands, and they're both alike, and yet they're not. They're mirror images, and because they're the same and not the same, they can come together and make one. And that, to me, is a really good picture of what God has done. That's his design. And those differences play out in our families, especially in the lives of our children. Moms and dads each influence their children in different ways, and that's God's design. And both of those influences are needed. Now, it's a sad truth in our society today that uh, it's been negatively affected by divorce so that one or the other of those influences is lessened. That is, it's not as powerful as it could be in the lives of the kids. Now, the church, another one of God's design, can go an awfully long way to mitigate those effects. The kids can see in the church how it's supposed to work, which I think is a great help, bigger than I think we might realize, and we ought to be glad about that. And the church itself can help moms and dads be better moms and dads in whatever situation they find themselves in. So today's Father's Day, of course, right? And I haven't done it yet, but let me say it to you. Happy Father's Day to every one of you who are fathers out there. And, um, and we are, are, because of this day, we're going to step away from our summer series in the book of Philippians to remember that. We're going to pay honor to dads and maybe to say some things that will help him to understand his part in the lives of his children better. And to do that, we're going to look at a passage out of the Old Testament, out of the Pentateuch. The, that's the first five books of the Bible written by Moses, the man of God. And the text we're going to look at today is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. And I'd like to ask you to join me there. If you have your Bibles, turn there. Of course, uh, the people up in the cave there will make sure that the text gets on the screen on either side of so this text that we're looking at this morning actually applies to both moms and dads. And I, and I realized that as I thought through it this week. And I've always read this, this uh, passage that we're going to look about, and I thought about it, how it was speaking to me as a man, as a father. And it's only natural, I, I really suppose, but, but God speaks to us individually from his word. But this is not a male-only text. There are some texts which are addressed specifically to males and others for females, but this isn't one of them. Men and women, because of their differences, may approach these truths differently, and they may, they may see them from their own perspective, but they apply to all of us. And yet the truth is it may be us men who need the reminder we find here more than our wives do. I suppose there are exceptions to this, but... Most moms' hearts are full of thoughts about their children and family, while men typically need to have those things recalled to their minds. 
at the birth of John the Baptist, it was prophesied that he would turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children. And nothing is even said about the need to do that for the mothers. That may be in our day that moms needed every bit as much as dads do. That's not my own experience, I have to tell you that, but our culture continues to shift like sand, so the firm places may even be moving in that regard. That's what I hope will happen this morning, that these reminders will help us to be better dads. And I know you guys. I mean, I know so many of you really well. Some of you I'm learning, getting to know, getting to know better and better. And I know what you really want. I, I know that you want to be good dads. I know that you also re- realize, you and I, how just often we really do fail. But God's gracious, and he forgives. And he keeps right on pointing us in the right direction. Well, the text begins by telling us something. It tells us that the way we live will affect our children, and not only our children, but also our grandchildren. So let's begin by reading in verse 1 and following. Moses is speaking here, and he says this, These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you're crossing the Jordan to possess, so that your children and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you and so that you may enjoy long life. Now I know there's a great deal going on here in that paragraph here and we're going to look at some of it briefly. Now the thing I want us to see here first is what we find in verse 2 and that is the way we live our lives. Man, I'm speaking it's true of ladies, but, but the way we live our lives matters to how our children and even our grandchildren will live. Verse 1 mentions the commandments we're to keep, and verse 2 tells us that it matters to those who follow by saying, so that your children and their children after them may fear the Lord your God. So dads, as you live out your faith, you influence your children positively. You help them to move toward the kingdom of God and into the kingdom of God and once they're there, to continue to move forward in it. So you may have read an illustration like I've seen. I've seen a number of them, but Dad's at wintertime and he gets dressed. He puts on his big boots and it's snow on the ground and there's six, seven, eight inches of snow. And he walks out the house and he's going to walk to the barn. Now, he doesn't realize that his little boy of six years old saw him go out and hurriedly put his coat and his boots on, and he walks out the door. And the dad's almost to the barn when all of a sudden he looks back and he sees his little boy behind him. And that little boy is putting one foot and another into the steps that his father made. And then the dad realized that sometimes he had to really stretch to do it. So he shortened those steps so it would be easier for his son. That's what kids do. They follow in our footsteps. And dad, when you're walking with Christ, you help them to do the same. Now that doesn't mean you have to be perfect. None of uh, you are. I'm not. Only Jesus ever was. But it does mean that you should live your faith. 
And when you fail, you confess your sins and you turn from them and you go forward. And you apologize to your children when you need to, and you will need to. That shouldn't be too hard. Um, you should already have had plenty of practice apologizing to your wife. But that is living faith, and that will help your children on the way. There are a couple of things I want to take note of here in the way of reminders. First, I want you to remember that no one except Jesus has ever gotten into heaven by keeping the commandments. God gave these commandments to those whom he had already delivered from bondage in Egypt. They were already his people. And the commandments are God's standards. They are that. And in that sense, they apply to everyone. But they were given to a people which God claimed as his own. And so if you belong to God, if you are one of his people, then this is the way, these commandments, this is the way that you ought to live. Now, each individual in that culture, in this nation of Israel, still had to come to that place in their life where they were personally responded to God's invitation in their heart and soul to be one of his own people. But once they were, then those commandments told them what was expected of them. Now, we who are Bible-believing Christians put it this way. Works cannot save you, but if you're saved, you will have works. And I can't put it any more plainly than that, more simply than that. The other thing that we need to comment on here is this notion of fear, which we see in the text. And maybe the best way to approach it is, uh, is to say this, that we could almost substitute the word respect or the word awe for that word fear in the text. Uh, we should respect God. We should be in awe of him. And when we try to live out our faith and we begin to have this really healthy respect for God, for who he is, and we begin to be in awe of him. And when that happens our, our soul, in our souls, when that happens in us, it influences our own children. It matters because the way we live our life changes and the way we interact with people and our own children changes. I have a little bit more to say about this subject of fear. I said we could almost substitute those words respect and all for fear because those are the things that are necessary for the right kind of fear of God, the kind that we should have for him. See, the old concept, the Old Testament concept of fear of God is not abject terror. That's for those who reject God, but, but it's one that reflects both respect and all because God is, after all, God Almighty, and we're his creatures. He has absolute authority over us. Now, I know we've all heard the truth that's recorded for us in the New Testament, that perfect love casts out fear, and it does. But it's God's love which has to do that. It has to cast out the fear. George MacDonald, who greatly influenced C.S. Lewis, once said, and I'm paraphrasing him here, we don't help people when we teach them not to fear God before we teach them to love him. Do you, do you understand this? Fear of God is inborn. It's innate. It's like the conscience. We all begin with it. And when God's love casts it out of us, it's because we've come to know him and all that he is. And until then, that fear itself is a good thing. 
And when it dies on the vine before we come to know God, well, all it does is yield rot in our lives. I, I want you to know what dads are takeaway here. The thing we ought to walk away from this is, is that our lives, the way we live, if we live them for God, will positively influence our children and our grandchildren. And I can't tell you how important that is. Now, before we go on, I just want to make uh, a point out of something else that the text tells us. Uh, in, in light of the things going on in our nation today, and especially in light of the upcoming elections, it's good for us to know that the way we live also matters to our country. And so in verse 3, we read here, Israel, that's the nation, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in the land, flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, your God of your ancestors, promised you. You see, our nation has prospered in the past because we followed God. Not everyone did, of course, but enough followed him so that he could bless us. And if enough turned back to him in our day, even now, he can still bless us. Not to tell you, you can't seek revival for that reason. God is not going to be used for our purposes. But if we follow God, help others, and our nation may turn back to him. God. God. Not a person. Not a party. Not a program. God is our hope and our only salvation. So that's a side, but it's worth saying because it's in the text. And the text goes on to tell us about uh, more about how we ought to live out our faith. We've already said this in, in a different way, but our faith is not just external, you understand it. It's not just what we do, but it's a matter of what's in our heart. And so verse 6 puts it this way. These commandments that I give you today are to be in your hearts. <laughs> so we embrace them because they're from God. And when we really put our trust in the Bible tells us that he writes those things on our hearts. We learn to love good because it is good. I mean, we still hate sin. I mean, we still sin, but we hate to sin, though we love that sin. <laughs> we hate it, and you know what I'm talking about, don't you? You know that struggle that we have with it. But the reason we struggle so much with it is because God's written those laws on our hearts. And the thing we need to do here, what this text reminds us of, is we need to guard our hearts. And if you want to have a positive influence in your children and your grandchildren's lives, and even on our nation, then we need to watch what we let go into our heart. Because what's in our heart affects the way we live, and even the very things that we say. Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, our mouth speaks. You know what that is? That's how, for you computer people, maybe this is an old term that isn't even used anymore, I don't know, but it's that G-I-G-O, right? Garbage in, garbage out. What you put into your computer is what you get out of your computer. Well, what you put into your heart is what you get out of your heart. And again, I have to say this. It's, it's not that we're perfect, but we, we learn to rely on God who perfectly loves us and guides us. And verse 7 goes on to say, it, tell us that it's really our job to teach our children the truths of the faith. And so we read there, impress them. 
these commandments, these truths of the faith, and press them on your children. He goes on to say, talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. And by the way, you know the only way that ever really happens is if it's written on your heart. If they become a part of you wherever you are, whatever you're doing, and you can't help but talk about them because it's the most natural thing in the world because it's in your heart and they come out in your life the things you say. And as you live your life, you impress the truth on your children by the things that you say and the things you do. And it's your job. (laughs) Both moms and dads, it's your job. It's your calling. It's more important than your career. It is not the church's job. It is not the youth pastors, the family pastors, or any other pastors. It is not the Sunday school teacher's responsibility or the Awana leader or the teacher at the Christian school. It's your job. All those other things, all of those other people are there to help you do your job. And verse 8 and 9 emphasizes what we've already been said. In verse 8, tie them, meaning God's word, his commandments as symbols on your hands and on your foreheads. You know, the Pharisees actually had what were called phylacteries, right? They were boxes that they tied on their forehead, and they had straps that went around the back of their head. And in those boxes were Scripture verses, Bible verses, right? And see, they failed to realize that what's written here is really symbolic, See, tying them as symbols on your hands and on your forehead means that whatever your hands find to do, do it for God and what's right and for the sake of others. Tying them on your head means that let the things which fill your mind honor God and fill your mind with his word and with his truth. Tying a box there or writing something on your hand is not same thing as living it out daily. And then verse 9 adds to the emphasis. It says, write them on the door frames of your house and on your gates. Once again, it's not about the writing on those places. What it means is when you come home, when you walk through the door, gentlemen, at the end of the night, after you've spent your day at work, you do not leave your faith outside. You bring it in with you. And when you leave in the morning, Or when you leave in the evening, when you go out into the world to earn your living or to shop or to play or for whatever other reason you leave your house, on the gate as you walk out, the word is written there. Your faith is to go with you. You don't leave it at home. It goes with you everywhere. Everything we think, everything we do, everywhere we go, we go as the people of God trying to live out our faith. And it matters to us personally. But it matters to our children and our grandchildren. And it matters to our nation. But I have to tell you, I know for me, for me as a dad, my children, what they do, what they become, what they believe, where they spend their eternity matters more than anything else. Because that matters so much. Because that's so important. There's one more passage we need to look at. And we skipped over a couple of verses. Now we've already talked and hinted all about it. You see, the way we do all of that, which we've talked about here, the place where it starts and 
where it ends, so to speak, is our relationship with God. So verses 4 and 5 we read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And I'm going to stop there for just a moment. Uh, we haven't gotten to the point yet, but this is an important part of it. You see, we're talking about God here. Uh, not just any God, but the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, the Lord God. That is the I am that I am God. I am that I am who is one. Not belief in just any God, but the one true God. That's who we're talking about here. And there's something else that I, I see here in this text. And it's an aside, and yet it's not. It has to do with just who God really is. What I find so wonderful about what's written here is that God did not say this. He didn't say, I'm the only God. That's implied there. I know that. And he could have said it, but he didn't. What he actually says is, I am one. Before he revealed to us his true nature, before he could show us that he is a trinity, one God existing in three persons, he had to drive home the fact that he is one God. That's what we learn here. Uh, there are hints and more than hints of that throughout the Scriptures, beginning in the very second verse, at the very beginning of our Bible in the creation account itself and in so many other places. But it was not fully revealed until the coming of our Savior, the Word of God, the Son of God who was born as a baby. Our God is one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that is the God we're to love. Verse 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. In other words, love God with everything which is in you. Dads, moms too. Love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Love him in your thoughts. Love him in the things that you do. Love him at home. Love him when you go out of your house. Love him when you feel his presence and taste again that he's good. And love him even when you don't feel like it by telling him what he already knows, that your heart is cold right now. This is living as a believer. It's not anything too hard, though. It is impossible for you alone, but it's not for God. All things are possible for Him, and He will meet you right where you are every day, every hour, every minute, every second, every moment, and He will be your God, and He will make you His own if you let Him. That's the dad and the moms your kids need. You and I fail all the time. Well, that's all right, because God is bigger than our failures. You just don't give up, because God hasn't given up on you. You keep on, keeping on. You won't be sorry. I promise you that. 
But more importantly, God's word says that. And his word never returns empty. Living for him matters. Matters to everybody. Especially our sons and daughters. Now I don't always do this on Father's Day. I don't know if I've done it every year since I've been here or not. But I would uh, like today to take just a few minutes of time together and to give some of you an opportunity to give thanks to God uh, for your dad or maybe your grandfather or maybe a son-in-law who's a good father or maybe even the person.